From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and this is your host, Ross Gallagher. We've just finished up recording this week's show. We're bringing you some big stories and even bigger conversations, including DeBite launches direct-to-bank payments for early-stage companies. Uh, this topic kept coming up uh, throughout the show, a super interesting one, and we had Tiger, uh, the CEO, here to talk to us about it. Uh, Klarna brings its price comparison tool to Europe, and uh, Mo from Klarna was here to... Uh, Tell us all about it in detail. And 11FS hosts its inaugural awards. So this week, we are the news. We get into all this and much more. But first, a few brief messages. So please don't touch that dial. Does your product or service work for everybody? Are you unconsciously alienating some of your audience? Packed with all the handy tips and actual insight, our brand new inclusive design report has all of the information you need to embed a truly representative mindset in your organization. Head to 11fs.com forward slash inclusive dash design and download it today. Hello and welcome to episode 682 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, I'm joined by my co-host, Nicole Perry, Strategy Director for Digital Business Growth at 11FS. Nicole, how's it going? Yes, very well, Ross. Thank you. I'm fresh out of the 11FS Awards last night. Excellent. That's a bit of a teaser, isn't it, for one of our... uh, stories later. So looking forward to getting into that one um, and hearing about how that all went for you. Um, Alongside myself and Nicole, we've got a FinTech Insider debut for Mo Garudi, Senior Product Lead at Kleiner. Mo, listen, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Maybe you can just give us a little bit about uh, yourself and your role at Kleiner. Awesome. Nice to meet you guys and thanks for having me on. Um, I've been at Kleiner for about three years now and I'm leading the search experience in the app at Kleiner. Awesome. Um, and some exciting news, I know, for you guys as well. So, look, thank you for uh, yes. jumping on and uh, and talking to us about it. Great to have you. And then um, we also have a welcome return for Tiger Balticholu, CEO of Debite. So, Tiger, welcome back. Great to have you. Maybe, again, you could just give our audience a, a brief reintroduction to both yourself and, and what you guys are doing over at Debite. Sure. Thanks, guys, for having me. And very good pronunciation of my surname, which is very hard, I know. Uh, I'm Taiga, CEO and co-founder of Dbyte. Uh, Dbyte is the only corporate credit card with built-in installments. We are focusing on helping early-stage companies to manage their cash flow, have like extending their runway, and trying to cover all their day-to-day expenses as well. Excellent. Awesome. And um, also exciting news for you guys this week as well. So uh, likewise, thanks for jumping on to talk about it and looking forward to getting into it. So um, yeah, with that and without any further ado, let's do just that. So our first story this week comes from Alt5 with a headline, Debite launches direct-to-bank payments for early-stage companies. So Debite is hoping to make life easier for early-stage companies by enable them to send payments directly from their Dubai corporate credit cards to bank accounts. The London-based company is known for bringing credit cards to early-stage startups and companies with built-in installments, allowing them to split payments up to 12 months. Dubai is now extending this flexibility by giving customers the ability to pay directly to bank accounts, broadening the range of payments and the number of merchants companies are able to pay. So Dubai Pay will first be offered to companies in the UK market, 
providing interest-free credit for up to 35 days with transfer fees starting at £5. So, Tiger, as I said, great to uh, have you on here to discuss this. I think it wouldn't make too much sense to start with anybody else on this one. Um, maybe you can explain, uh, first of all, maybe a little bit about how Dubai Pay works and, and what it's taken to get uh, to get here. Of course, uh, like we're always trying to understand what our customers' needs and mostly early stage customers. Uh, those startups are looking for some flexibility uh, for their payments, for their corporate card spendings and everything. And by the time we are checking their open banking transactions, they are only by card transactions. We realize that we are not covering every single aspect of their spendings, which like some of the customers of their or their merchants doesn't accept credit cards, which is an obvious and normal thing. And we realize that if we can give them a flexibility to, to pay with their card uh, to a bank, like making a bank transfer, it would be very easy solution for them. And they can use their available credit line to pay any 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 company in the uk so that's actually helping them to for us to become their primary spending channel that's our kind of a north star metric we are trying to be there and cover every single expense that they have and then like with the current market dynamics as you can imagine while you are spending money with your credit card or from your credit limit you need to have some flexible payment terms as well so we give them the ability of spread that cost three, six, nine, twelve months as well. So basically, we see a lots and lots of usage of those installment options because I think this is very new on the EU and UK market. So people are like really like it so far. It's great. I I like what you said about you know for, for from your perspective becoming that sort of um, the primary account, but I think doing it in a way by offering sort of customers greater flexibility, like you said greater choice, greater convenience. Maybe can you give us a little bit of an example of how a typical customer might, might use this new feature? Yeah. So like while we were doing the risk assessment to our companies, we were always trying to exclude the payroll. This is the biggest chunk, I think. So we're excluding the payroll and trying to understand how much they are spending on non, non-payroll payments every month. So the limits are always quite similar to what they're spending, excluding payroll. And now we realize that if they are working with a payroll specialist company like like Remote, Ideal, like all lots of other ones, we can easily help them to pay even uh, their like salaries or like any other uh, expense that they have. So basically, from tax payments to payroll expenses or any other customer or merchant that doesn't accept, doesn't use Stripe or Adyen or any other payment processor in their lifetime, which is basically working like a normal bank transaction. Excellent. I mean, you listed lots of different types of payments there that um, it sort of enables and I guess scenarios or use cases where different types of payments, card payments, for example, weren't um, being accepted. So it opens up uh, that world a little bit as well. Um, I'm curious, Tiger, is how much is this a, a sort of reaction to what's going on economically at the moment versus something that's been on your uh, roadmap now for quite a while? Yeah, we, like I realized that we are actually offering a financial painkiller to early stage companies because it's like this, this is not a vitamin product. Basically, if you are doing a couple of thousand pounds profit every month as an SME, uh, sometimes you c- couldn't collect your money. There's like, like fluctuations of the revenue. Your costs might be coming uh, faster than you're expecting. So this installment option is working pretty well for those guys. And we realized that 
like 50% of our GTV, like the whole transactions that uh, spend with the card is turned into an installment right now. So that's why we believe that we are actually helping them to extend their runway, have a better margin. And with the inflation rates that we have right now is actually helping them to survive. So that's why I think when we are talking about B2B, B2B payments, B2B side of the business, uh, it's all about like painkillers. You need to solve something, you need to help them. And then you become a, an inseparable partner to, to especially the early stage ones. Because like if you're a big profitable enterprise, everyone wants to have a chunk of you. Like the banks are giving you super cool rates, like less, like small interest rates. But if you're an SME or like pre-seed, seed, series A type of startup, no one take, takes care of you. So that's what we see right now. I completely agree. I think we all know that they've been at that end of the market spectacularly underserved, right, for such a long time. And I think SMEs are such an incredibly diverse group, right? I mean, there's there's as many problems and issues for SMEs that need to be solved as there are SMEs, right, at least. So um, exactly. Everyone is talking about this is the riskiest parts of the business, like early stage startups, SMEs, but no one is able to measure how risky, what 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 does risk means to them. So now with the technology, with the open banking, open finance, everything is actually helping financial players to understand more and with the right data and a unique under, underwriting model you can actually help them to build something bigger to, to help them to grow better this this is i think the future like 90 percent of of the economies depending on smes if you can understand what they need if you can offer them the solutions uh, i think it's going to affect the economy in a very positive way as well yeah i mean they're the backbone of the economy in in, in pretty much every country right mo i mean i'm keen to bring you in, I, I guess, how much do you think um, sort of being able to pay in installments, um, sort of buy now, pay later options, how much do you think those are going to help SMBs, particularly, I guess, with where we are now economically and facing into quite a, a difficult time? I mean, uh, at Klarna, we, we partner with uh, Billy uh, to offer uh, B2B buy now, pay later. Um, so, uh, Billy uh, payment methods are available to Klarna merchants um, uh, with businesses that are as our customers. Um, so that way, you know, for example, a DIY store who also has uh, tradesmen as their customers, they can offer um, B2B, buy now, pay later. And as Tiger said, uh, the direction we're going with the economy, I think that will become more and more important. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about choice, right? I tend to think of it as like, tools and kind of like your financial tool belt, different types of financial products will be better for different types of situations. But if you give, whether it's businesses, whether it's consumers, the right tools to actually manage them, then ultimately they're better off, right? Nicole, I'm interested in the the consumer side as well, right? I mean, we've seen lots of, uh, lots of movement there around sort of um, pay by bank. I know that um, JP Morgan and MasterCard have sort of jumped into this space We've seen lots of movement as well with um, bank raising their Series A. Um, I'm curious about, this is kind of a, a trend now that we're seeing, isn't it, around um, those sort of account-to-account -account and direct-to-bank direct -bank payments? Yeah, certainly. Um, and I think more, some places in the globe are uh, more advanced than others. It's no secret that the US is kind of lagging behind uh, with lack of a, central regulation really pushing innovation and pushing adoption. 
in the area. But, you know, even in the US, the charge is really being led by amazing fintechs um, and private companies now. And I think that consumers, they they, they do see the... It's, it's one of those ones where as, as soon as you've got them hooked and they feel the benefit and see the benefit, then they will continue to use it. And actually encouraging that adoption of behaviour is quite easy. It's just getting them in. Um, that's the bit of the barrier to kind of change and behavioural change. But, I mean, for customers, it's great. Uh, if anyone that's listening hasn't used an open banking payment before, once you use it, you'll know that it's, you know, it's much faster. Um, it's overall a better experience. Um, and in the back end, it's much more secure, actually, as a type of payment. Um, and it is less costly. So actually, what we might see in the future is that when this is mass adopted by merchants, because they have lower costs in payments, some of that cost may be passed on to consumers. So it's a win-win for consumers and merchants. And as you see, the, you know, the card networks have, are taking this seriously. They have been for some time. Big players like JP Morgan are. Um, so I think uh, it won't be long until it's the primary way to pay. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I'm, I'm looking at a, a really good quote that I saw from the uh, co-founder and CEO of um, Go Cardless, um, Hiroki Takeuchi. And he said that direct bank payments are the way of the future and actually noted that last year more payments in the UK were made on, on faster payment rails than on, on credit cards, right? And I think we already know that sort of Gen Z's reaction to credit cards, they don't find them um, as enticing as uh, as maybe previous generations. So it'll be interesting to see how that trend continues. Tiger, keen to give you sort of the last the last word on this. Um, is, is this fundamentally different what you're offering with divide pay to, to things like um, trade credit? Is it, is it more innovative? Yeah, yeah, it's all about different uh, say vehicles to pay, different vehicles to sustain your business. But our main core proposition is when no one is understanding your risk or offering you any sort of capital, we are going to be there. It's going to be either bank transfer, it's going to be a corporate credit card, there, there should be lots of different vehicles as well. But at the end, the, the, the way that we are trying to go is we are going to give you the insights, like what's happening in your company, what are the problems that you're going to have, and then we are going to give you a solution with our capital. That's what we are trying to do. Because if you're only focusing on the vehicle, like a corporate credit card, with the interest rates are going up, I don't believe that any other corporate credit card business can survive right now uh, if they just started to, to their business trying to raise some debt capital from other lenders, they cannot survive with the margins. Like the interest rates going up, the interchange fees are capped so that you need to find innovative ways to help your customers. Maybe it's going to be a bit more long-term vision, long-term goal because like the current economics is not helping you to have, a, let's say, very healthy unit economics. But at the end, it's all about like solving the problems with either vehicles. So I think in the near future, we're going to see lots of different vehicles, lots of different instruments to, to solve the easiness, the effectiveness, and the fast, uh, let's say, payment processes and everything. But at the end, it's all about solving problems. I think, I think that's just the perfect way to wrap that story up, right? It's not necessarily about the vehicle, like you said, or the product, but it's about doing the right thing for the customer in the context of their business. And, and, and I think that's such a lovely way to... Uh, to sort of sum it up but a real uh sort of yeah pat on the back for the product as well so so congrats to you guys and uh yeah we'll be keeping an eye on it 
Um, for more on the question of whether SMEs are really being served by the fintech industry, do go and check out episode 659 of Fintech Insider Insights, where I spoke to guests from Alica Bank and Novo to answer just that. Okay, um, our next story comes from TechCrunch uh, with a headline, A Credible Alternative to Google and Amazon. Klarna brings its price comparison tool to Europe. So Klarna is expanding into the competitive world of price comparisons with the launch of a new tool that compares prices across thousands of retailers. The company quietly rolled out the price comparison service in the US a few weeks back. It is now extending this into additional markets in Europe, including the UK and the Nordics. With today's announcement, Kleiner is building on an acquisition that closed just six months ago when it snapped up comparison shopping service Price Runner in a $1 billion deal. Mo, so listen, thank you for joining us um, and to talk about this this new feature. Maybe you can uh, just take us through how, how it will work for uh, the perspective of a typical user. Sure. So as a user, you uh, have access to the Klarna app, so you can download the Klarna app. Uh, when you launch the Klarna app, uh, let's say specifically in the UK market, um, you can tap the search bar, and that search bar now gives you access to uh, a number of different types of search. But fundamentally, in from, from the perspective of this example, uh, we're talking about product search. So let's say you're looking to buy a jacket and you search for Canada Goose, for example. Canada Goose um, hitting enter on the keyboard in that case will kind of present you with a series of different types of results. Um, you'll be presented with the ability to go directly to the merchant's website and you could go and navigate and you know find specifically what product you want from Canada Goose themselves. Or you could explore um, specific products from Canada Goose by tapping the clothing category. Doing that filters um, the products by clothing and you're able to apply a bunch of different um, category-specific filters, and that way you can slice and dice the products in a way that's relevant to you. And um, let's say you pinpoint a specific jacket that you're really interested in. Clicking onto that takes you to what we call the product page, and there you're able to you know, see uh, larger images of the product, zoom in, etc. Um, you can see price comparison, so regardless of which merchant sells that specific jacket, um, you can see an overview of the product and you can see you know, what merchant has, what shipping options, what prices, etc., as well as the kind of bottom line price that they're offering it at. We also aggregate reviews um, and those reviews essentially are aggregated both, both from kind of users as well as experts. And that way you can get some social validation on the purchase as well. Um, so that's kind of what we've launched for now. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of drives traffic towards the merchant. It's a really nice uh, example, Mon. Thank you for uh, for talking us through it. I know it's only been a couple of weeks that it's been sort of live in the US and obviously you guys now are extending it into other markets. Um, have you got a sense yet for how your customers are responding to it? And I guess specifically, you know, obviously sort of originating that journey in the, the Klarna app rather than say on the Canada Goose website? Yeah. So far, great response. I think there's an element of discoverability of the feature and kind of as more users kind of discover the feature, they start using it more and more frequently. Um, I think our approach with everything that we do at Klarna is essentially build a really, really, really good experience for the consumer and that will automatically drive them back to the product um, over time. So, yeah, I think uh, too early to say for now, but I think uh, early signs are really positive. 
Yeah, that's good. And 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 Mo, how much is this a, a sort of just an integration of the the price runner, their existing offering, and how much is it something maybe that you guys have sort of uh, tweaked and customized a little bit? Yeah, good question. I guess the capability largely comes from price runner. However, there are two key elements here that we do uh, really well at Klarna. Uh, fundamentally, user experience. I think if you look at you know what Klarna became famous for is you know, the, the checkout process and the payment methods that we provide, ultimately, we made it really, really easy to check out. Um, we're taking that same philosophy and applying it, you know, further up the funnel now. Um, and essentially, that user experience is, I think, what really brings value to the kind of top level discovery and searching and finding the right product and evaluating that product. And then also reach. So in the UK alone, we have about 8 million app downloads. In the US, 27 million. So we're immediately able to take that capability to a much, much larger audience. Yeah, they're big numbers, aren't they? But, you know, you guys are constantly building out, like you said, the value of the product for those consumers and going beyond just the the payments piece and sort of expanding out and, and sort of owning, I guess, more and more of that uh, of that journey. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a big step, I guess. Uh, Nicole, ke- keen to bring you in. If we go back to the the headline of this one. So a credible alternative to Google and Amazon. It's no small feat, is it, to try and topple those two giants? Yeah, no small feat to topple it, but definitely a feat that could be conquered to give a better experience, or maybe that's just my opinion. But I'm personally not a fan of uh, using Google and Amazon's shopping comparison. I'm always just nervous that I've not got the full inclusion of what's out there and that the prices aren't fair or you know maybe they bring up merchants that I don't trust or have not heard of um so I think that uh you know obviously you have to have be involved with the Klarna ecosystem to actually use this but I think yeah it, it would be I can imagine it being a far better experience I particularly love the fact that the shipping costs are included it's such a small detail that's just often overlooked and uh, you know it's, it's a huge part of the decision making process sometimes you can it'll be cheap but the delivery is expensive so uh yeah uh, congratulations on it i think it'll really add value to your customers but also to your merchants because it's a huge acquisition tool and i know klarna has got an excellent relationship with its merchants and its retailers uh, and i think that they will be glad to see this being added to the value proposition yeah i i i completely agree and i think actually um tiger there's um, parallels, I think, that go back to what you said about how you guys are trying to solve customers' problems and sort of, you know, be, be, become that, whether it's that primary account or whatever it is, but doing it by really delivering value and added value for customers. And when you think about um, some of the, the 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 features within this, so it shows shoppers' historical pricing data, for example, which shows how the cost has sort of fluctuated over time and what, in, give, giving an indication of whether they should buy now or wait a little bit longer to see if the price goes down. I feel like things like that will really, A, resonate with consumers, but then B, I think, start to help to build trust, right? Yeah, exactly like that. Like we are living in a like in a world that's becoming very transparent and it's going to become more transparent in the near future. So all those technological moments, improvements and everything is going to give consumers the right to choose whoever they want to work with whether they want to buy a, a, a good or product from them. So I think that transparency is going to eventually disrupt the whole traditional market. And that's what 
like even the big startups, let's say startup as a Klarna is focusing on. Um, the, the, these times are, let's say, a, a bit harsh and it's going to be a bit harder than we expected, but it's a very good time to innovate. That's what I believe. Yeah, and, and actually, Mo, one, one thing that I'd love to um, to just circle back to that you said was about, um, I think you said that there's a combination of sort of user reviews and expert reviews. And actually, I think that probably deserves a little bit of a double click just as a feature, because I think I go on Amazon now or Google, I don't trust the reviews anymore, right? I know that there's probably lots of them are sort of just being hacked to sort of push products up in the SEO and the, the, the search results and that sort of stuff. And I, I think that's probably fairly universal. Was that something that you guys had in mind when you were thinking about how to build out the, the reviews? Ultimately, any purchase decision that we make online uh, requires an element of validation to make sure that this is indeed the right product for me. Um, and that validation can happen through a different a series of different pillars. Um, fundamentally, you know, social validation is a, is, a, is a big one that we all rely on. On the topic of reviews, I think, you know, if you think about uh, the Klarna app, we have, uh, with extreme certainty, knowledge of like you kind of finding a product on our app and actually going ahead to the merchant's website and checking out with that with that merchant. So we know specifically that you did buy that product. So once we do start capturing reviews, then these reviews are really um, kind of authenticated uh, in a sense, and you know we. Um, can present that to you with zero bias on the on the topic of whether or not there's a merchant bias here or not, because you know it's irrelevant who you bought it from. We will capture that review for you. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I you are in a in a unique position, obviously, to sort of verify reviews and all that sort of stuff, which again, I just think is is value um, to to the end user in that sense. Um, Tiger, I'm um, interested in your thoughts around like maybe disrupting the, the the sort of marketplace model. It feels like there's room for more players in that space as well as just Amazon and Google. And, you know, that actually that might drive benefits for, um, you know, both the, the businesses that are selling on those marketplaces and also the end users in terms of maybe bringing down some of the fees. Yeah, I think when you become that big let's say you have started to lose some opportunities why because like if no one is threatening you to innovate more uh, if no one is pushing you to become a better of yourself it's just like you start to, to act like this is kind of a cash cow so that you are trying to get as much as you can from your existing customers that i think that's the worst thing because once another competitor sees that there is an opportunity that those big players are not fulfilling right now because they're focusing on today. Today means like earning as much as they they can from their customers. There is a like big opportunity comes in and that's I think what Klarna is doing right now. Uh, and effectively it's gonna help other con consumers in the near future because like when there is more competition, it's, it's, a, it's a very good thing for the merchants and for the customers as well. So those, big guys when when everything is going great though those big guys are not focusing on today but when there's a, like a market downturn when there's a financial crisis they are trying to move with the with the financial market so they start to focus on now when they start to focus on now there's an opportunity for the for the bit or the new players that's what we are doing as well in fp so like the banks are 
super big. They can do whatever they want. We are borrowing money with double digits. They are borrowing money with single digits. So, but once they are started to focus on now, they are losing lots of things. And like this is this is this is what I believe. Like when when it's raining, uh, you can easily pass fifteen cars. But if there is sunshine over there, you cannot pass. That's that's what the Formula One drivers are focusing on. Now it's raining, so that you have the opportunity to bypass all the other guys. Yeah. No, yes, yeah, really nice analogy, actually. Yeah, so Mo, look, keen to give you the uh, the last word on this one. Obviously, we've seen you guys be quite successful and ambitious in how you've obviously established yourselves in the, the buy now, pay later space and then sort of expanded out to own more of those customer touch points and more of that customer journey. Um, is that something that we'll uh, continue to see from you guys? So buy now, pay later is a big part of what we do and always will be. Uh, we see it as a much healthier and more sustainable way to offer credit. Um, but it's one thing we do among many others. Um, it isn't the only thing we do. So kind of we will continue on that um, process of expanding value at all the touch points in the consumer shopping journey. And so, yeah. Excellent. Well, look, Mo, congratulations on uh, the launch of this new feature. And thanks again for coming on to, uh, to talk to us about it. Um, so we'll just take a quick pause here and we'll be back very shortly. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's get into our next story, which comes from NBC News with a headline, credit card interest rates hit record high. So the cost of carrying a balance on your credit card is now the highest it's been in more than 30 years in the US. According to a survey data from bankrate.com, the average credit card interest rate has climbed to 19.04%. Bankrate has been surveying credit card rates since 1985, and this eclipses the previous all-time high of 19% from July 1991. The new high coincides with the Federal Reserve's raising its key federal funds rate to a level not seen in more than a decade as it fights persistent inflation. The central bank hopes making it more expensive to borrow will slow down the economy and ease upward pressure on prices. Um, so Nicole, I'll come to you maybe first on this one. What were your uh, thoughts when you uh, when you read this story? Uh, it's not really surprising, is it? Sadly, um, yeah, it's it's one of these things that you expect to happen, kind of with the economic cycle. Uh, I know that you know debt is is rising; it's back to pre pandemic levels, and um, yeah, it's always a sore one to talk about to talk about this um my only hope is that people aren't using their it'd be interesting to dig into the data of what the spend is on the cards my hope in some instances is that people have been spending sort of out with their means and actually that's quite easy to pull back and then the debt can be manageable rather than using the card for you know essential purchases which would then be a completely spiraling issue um someone kind of asked you know is this good news or bad news for card companies uh I don't think it's either. Um, it, you know, you hope that this isn't going to be, you know, a situation that's got longevity. 
uh, and and you know there's we know that they're still battling with buy now pay later and you know that market change and changing the product offering but I don't think this is an instance where that then brings them back on the up uh, it's just unfortunately uh, one of those things that happen in, in times like this so yeah just not unexpected but doesn't make it any less depressing I suppose yeah it I think it is depressing I completely agree with you and and I also agree that the the critical question is is you know look longer term will this actually stop people from borrowing more will this you know help them build better um financial habits but also I think in the meantime how exposed are consumers how sort of heavily indebted are they how how sort of painful is this going to be for them in terms of um, paying paying back this credit? I mean, the thought that people are, you know, like you mentioned, Nicole, at pre-pandemic levels of sort of short-term debt as we face into the worst cost of living crisis um, for a generation is is very scary. Um, Tiger, keen to keen to bring you in. What were what were your thoughts on this one? For the last 29 years, I was living in Turkey. So imagine the, all of those interest rate changes. Like, we, like that, that's crazy. And I see that for the short term, it's actually helping people to spend less because of the sensitivity on the interest rates and the prices. Because interest rate is pricing of the risk. So now the risk is high, interest rate is going high. So the banks doesn't prefer to uh, deal with multiple customers that's normal thing but if the like the federal reserve or like the the government doesn't change this in a very quick way there's going to be a big problem because then it doesn't it it doesn't work properly because at one point people are started to say yeah i am not that sensitive on the pricing i'm not sensitive, sensitive on the interest rate so they are trying to survive and they are trying to save the day but that's I, I think that's that's becoming hard. So yes, it's gonna slow down the economy a bit, but like we need to have a dramatic decisions to take in order to solve this problem quickly. Because if if this problem is not solved quickly, interest rate doesn't mean anything. That's like the credit card companies, the banks are gonna make lots of profits. But if it's gonna be a long term thing, it's gonna be very bad for consumers and businesses. That's that's what I believe, and for that's what we were talking with my friends at the at Debyte as well. Now the, the 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 price is going so high, so it's very very hard for new players to come in to disrupt the market. Like if you're a new player, new lending player, if you're gonna borrow money, you're gonna borrow at least 15, 16, 17 percent yearly interest. So like the the interchange is kept, uh, you're gonna have a very thin margin. And because of the risk is going up, you're going to see lots of defaults for consumers and for businesses as well. So those defaults are going to affect so that people are not going to fund those new companies. So this, like, there's a trade-off. We need to solve this problem quick or the big banks, the big players are going to make lots of profits because the people are going to be less sensitive on price. That's what I understand from my like 29 years of experience in an emerging market. Now nobody cares in Turkey. You're right, aren't you? I mean, um, ultimately, this isn't good for consumers, right? I mean, they're going to be left with less choice. They're going to be left with more expensive options. We've seen it here in the UK as well recently with mortgages. Mo, I could see you sort of nodding along when when Tiger was making a lot of those points. Um, 
I'm sure you've got some thoughts on this one. Yeah, I mean, I think the same pattern is visible in the UK as well. So average credit card interest rates is at 22% in the UK. Um, that's the highest it's been since 1995. The difference is that the Bank of England base rate is half of what it was in 1995. So I think as interest rates increase, um, the value of interest-free buy now, pay later to consumers increases as well. Yeah, I agree. And and, and actually, look, you know, going back to my previous point about um, consumers having less choice, well, at least there are alternatives in the form of um, more innovative products like buy now, pay later. Um, I've got a, a bit of a, a bugbear, I guess, around um, why it's so much easier for, and Nicole, I'm going to, I'd love your thoughts on this one, for consumers to to get into debt than it is to actually sort of build savings and then sort of build wealth over time. And of course, we've been through this, right, with um, the financial crash in 2008 and, and all of that sort of stuff. And it doesn't actually seem to fundamentally change things. And I wonder why you think that is. Is it is it a lack of like financial literacy and understanding? Is it how the banking business model has traditionally been structured? It just, is it really working for consumers? Because we seem to find ourselves here again and again. Yeah, it's a large number of variables that kind of come together in a bit of a perfect storm. You know, in some instances, the macro environment is placing severe pressure, genuine pressure on household finances, coupled with a lack of financial literacy, ease of accessibility, unnecessarily high credit rate, credit limits being given. Um, and then you have this mushrooming issue of social pressure to sort of keep up with the Joneses, particularly in younger demographics. And the availability of credit, it feels easy, combined with that lack of literacy. It feels like, as we all know and have heard, you know, I did it in my 20, early 20s too, free money. Um, so you kind of have this mushrooming effect of all of these coming together. And then, yeah, as we know, you know, wages aren't going up in line with inflation. You build up a card debt early on. It tends to stay with you. It's very difficult to get rid of. The whole model is based around minimum payment. And, and I hate to say it, but sort of it's been built to trap customers. Uh, and unless you fundamentally break that trapping model, then we will not get to a place where, where debt is managed and providers are working in partnership with consumers to manage that debt properly, fully and effectively. Yeah, you summed that up so, so well, Nicole. And I think it, it's reminded me of um, our CEO, David. I, he said something, um, it might have been something he had out on LinkedIn a while ago, talking about credit. And he said, the only acceptable form of credit is a mortgage and anything else is impatience. Um, and I think maybe you could take that with a little bit of a, a pinch of salt, actually, as a, a sort of overarching framework. I think it's helpful. Um, like, Ross, imagine that now, lots of lots of young people like 18 to 30 let's say they are using the crypto exchanges to use leverage positions so imagine that those guys are like losing thousands of thousands of pounds because of 10x 20x leverage positions and now we are expecting them to understand the risk of interest rates like all of those things because we made it normal because like we were printing money, the federal exchange was printing money and everything like the money was there. Everybody was like getting free money. And then now we are expecting them to understand what the real world is. 
it's gonna be really hard because like we got used to we got used to have 5x increase on the crypto exchanges we we got like tremendous growth in the stock market and now things are getting normalized and we are expecting them like the young generation to adapt it it's gonna be a really hard one that like we, we need to be aware of it yeah no it's it's exactly right and of course everything is totally different once things head into a downturn and and, and how people cope and the skills that you need to cope in that type of environment are completely different um I completely agree. All right, I'm going to move us on now to our next story, which comes from The Verge, um, with a headline, Elon Musk details his plan to turn Twitter into a bank. So Elon Musk seems intent on turning Twitter into a bank, complete with what he describes as a high-yield money market account, debit cards, checks, and loans. He described his plans during a last-minute meeting with company staff last week. Musk broached the topic of payments during his introduction, talking about a, quote, transformative opportunity in payments. He added that the goal is, quote, enabling people on Twitter to be able to send money anywhere in the world instantly and in real time. Musk added that Twitter will set up a high yield money market account so that having a Twitter balance is the highest yield thing that you can do. Instead of traditional banks, complex and expensive system of credit cards, savings and checking accounts, Musk said you will have one balance on Twitter that can simply go positive or negative. Um, I think my reaction to reading this story can probably be summed up in two words, and that's eye roll emoji. But I'm interested in (laughs) getting the group's thoughts. Maybe, Tiger, we'll start with you. Uh, I think two aspects. One, if he do it, no one can say like how did you uh, how did he do it because like we saw that like he can send rockets to Mars, he can build like an EV car, like he can buy Twitter and <laughs> it's like, crazy. But at the end, like I think if you are not doing not doing a financial services company, you are always like trying to become something like a financial services company, like a bank, because you see the potential. But like he, he knows this better than me. He like he, he found it like X. Like okay, he, he knows what he does. But I think he has a tremendous pressure on him uh, because of the current Twitter acquisition and like the stock prices of his other companies, etc. Is not helping to 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 be, to be uh, more relaxed. Let's say so. He needs another story to sell. He needs to say that this is more valuable than $45 billion company. If he was doing it eight months ago, one year ago, it was probably more than $45 billion company. He can find more money. He can uh, do whatever he wants. But now it's a bit like trying to find new things. Uh, if someone else was claiming that they're going to do something like that, I would say uh, impossible. But like, if he's saying, like, I won't bet against him. That's what I know. So, like, if he's going to do it, maybe I'm going to have an account on Twitter as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I get where you're coming from, and you're right. I mean, I wouldn't, if he if he put his mind to it, I wouldn't bet against him either. I mean, he talks a lot and makes a lot of promises, and they don't all uh, come to fruition or materialize. Um, Mo, what do, what do you think of this one? Yeah, I mean, we can't deny he's a smart guy. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, I think um, the world needs... Uh, more smart people thinking about how to disrupt uh, traditional retail banking. Um, And, you know, uh, it's an industry that hasn't historically served its customers that well. So 
um, why not? It's a it's a trillion dollar banking industry. Lots of room for more innovation and more disruption to the status quo. Yeah, I mean, Nicole, I can't really shake the feeling that like this is an and finally story, like at another time and in a different context. So maybe like it's a sign of the times and um, and and sort of where we've come. But I think um, for me, some of the blockers are like. Their Twitter's financial struggles are well publicized, right? Like they've they've struggled to hit profitability. So I don't know where the cash is coming from this for this high yield account, as an example. And surely, like surely, a banking license is just completely out of the question. I mean, when you look at how he's handled the Twitter takeover, for one, they're operating in complete violation of like basic elements of GDPR. They don't even have a data protection officer because that person was laid off. Um, I just, I just don't know really how this works and I'm struggling to take it seriously. Yeah, it's fair, fair points for us. We were talking on a podcast a while back that, um, the biggest digital wallet will ultimately come from a social network, which I actually think I agree with that hypothesis. Uh, we've not quite, or no one's quite found a way to actually mobilize social payments yet. And if anyone's going to do it, I think it could possibly be him. Um, yeah, there's a number of reasons why you would want to have payments inside your social app. Um, you can connect directly with your creators, you pay them, you know, all of those payments are tracked. Uh, whereas just now, if you take that, you're taking that payment out of the journey, it's kind of the opposite of what we've seen with bundling of financial and non-financial activity together. Uh, in terms of blockers, I mean, his vision is really strong. And actually, if you look at what he's been doing since he took Twitter over, on paper, in a black and white world, some of it makes sense. Like, it doesn't make money. Uh, there's losses, you know, mass, you know, going on. And he's got his own opinions about whether you should work remotely or whether everyone should be in the office. So if you look at that on paper, some of it makes sense. But we don't live in a black and white world. We live in a very beautiful multicolored world, grey world. So actually, the biggest blocker to him will be his risk of completely alienating people that believe in him, the journey, the vision, and, and why Twitter was actually set up in the first place. So regardless of how good his ideas and his strategy looks on paper, you've got to have the organisation behind you. And it'll be really interesting to see if he continues on this storm, or actually it's all a bit of a front, a PR exercise, a cleansing, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think my my ultimate opinion is that it's got potential, but he needs people on the bus with them. I think the missing point on Twitter is the economy around Twitter. Because when you look at YouTube, they're like, I think there's going to be a billionaire from YouTube content creation like Mr. Beast. We don't see something like that in Twitter, which there should be something like that. In order to create that economy and create that environment for Twitter creators, let's say, uh, maybe that might be a good opportunity for them to offer something to those creators as a form of landing because like those guys need some funding to in order to create more content in order to uh, reach out to more people and uh, as an influencer there are not tons of companies who is focusing on helping them financially let's say uh, we have a really good uh, ecosystem around youtube snapchat tiktok facebook instagram but i think 
if they they are gonna focus on one thing, and I'm gonna be a startup that is gonna focusing on help like moving along uh, Twitter, I would do something for Twitter creators, bring more creators, bring more financial stability for them. So I think that might be a game changer because uh, maybe US UK is a different, but let's say in the emerging market, this place is people read news because like you cannot trust on like a written publications in the emerging markets mostly because always like there's a, a bit control of the government but now like whenever i wake up i check my twitter to see what's going on in turkey in the uk i can find another publication to read but uh, the emerging market is hard so i would do something like that if i were him but like who am i like I agree with you there. There's a lot of intellectual value that is unmonetized on Twitter. Uh, and potentially that could be, you know, from one way incentivizing generation of more value, but at the same time, you know, um, kind of building a growth loop within Twitter's engine as well. Yeah. I've, I've often pondered what the world would look like if these organizations had started out with a paid for model from the beginning. Uh, if we were used to paying for Twitter, which is, as you say, it's like such a great source of intellect and humour and fun and connection, then would we have seen any of the unethical practices by social uh, networks? Would we be in this position where they're inherently difficult to make profit? But uh, hindsight is a wonderful thing, as you say. I think it's. I think the the creator or that sort of influencer segment as well. I think that's a really really interesting point because. Um, I think there's, you know, somewhere around like the 50 or 60 million globally that would consider themselves creators, but only a very, very small portion, maybe 1 million-ish, are actually have turned it into a full-time career. And I think if you can give creators the tools to cross that chasm from it being a sort of like a side hustle, like it's my passion, but actually focusing on that as a career, I think that to ignite it would be absolutely awesome. I'm keen to get you guys' thoughts though, right? Would any of you actually trust elon musk's twitter with your money and your bank account is anyone actually willing to go in on that <laughs> right silence i think that's an interesting that's an interesting litmus test and i'm gonna move this on yeah and um, we should be the early adopters right as the tech people here so right nice exactly nice exactly answer. um okay great so um now for the section of the show that we're calling Big Click Energy, which is a quick fire roundup of some more click-worthy news this week. Uh, Nicole, do you want to kick things off? Sure. Uh, so first up in this section, the story comes from Reuters, and it's JP Morgan's uh, plans to expand in Greece with a new office and payments team. So US bank GPM said it will open a new office in Athens to support the growth of its business in the country. The office will house a new payments innovation lab for which the firm will hire a payments research and development team locally, including product and engineering specialists. The lab will provide research and development to the bank's global payments business, including working with Onyx, JP Morgan's business unit that leverages cutting-edge technologies like blockchain. JP Morgan has previously acquired a stake in Greek fintech Viva Wallet back in January this year. Well, this is a very timely story following the 11FS Awards last night where Jamie Dimon was crowned FinTech Leader of the Year. Jamie Dimon truly puts JP Morgan's investment where his mouth is and he is consistently and aggressively pursuing change across the board whilst not taking his eye off the pursuit of tomorrow's world. 
This is another great example of that, particularly with the lab being focused on ledger technology, AI and cryptography. And finally, kind of last piece on this, it's also a great boost to the Greek economy and labour market with the local talent being brought in and it's further diversification of the European fintech scene. So this one is a thumbs up from me and very nice to read it. Yeah, nice. Excellent. All right, our next one comes from Tech Funding News. Um, Banked secures another $15 million in Series A to bring pay-by-bank to the world. So UK-based payment fintech Banked has announced the closure of a $15 million Series A extension round, bringing their total investment to over $50 million to date. The investment round was supported by City and National Australia Bank Ventures, The extension came as a result of an oversubscribed Series A earlier this year that was led by Bank of America. The round highlights strong support for banks' pay-by-bank model. Um, I think this one for me, I mean, as with our uh, lead story on Dubai, I think it's really a a hot topic right now and and, and clearly one of... uh, interest for for major VCs who obviously see this sort of pay-by-bank as a real growth opportunity. So uh, yeah, great to see it. And I think one that we will keep an eye on um, for sure. So uh, to find out what this funding round makes possible for Banked that maybe wasn't possible before, we reached out to CEO Brad Goodall. So it's really exciting to be announcing the new Series A extension led by Insight Partners uh, with Citibank, NAB, uh, Ventures and Rapid also participating. The focus now for for Banked is uh, about growth and expansion um, and deployment of the product inside of Europe and the UK, where we've got a mature product, um, a very focused partnership with a number of partners that are distributing the product for us, like Bank of America and Rapid, um, and some more to be announced soon. We've obviously got quite a large footprint with our team um, being based uh, in the UK and in Europe, uh, and now we're really starting to deploy resources into the US. We've got a very aggressive strategy of uh, getting into the US quickly. Uh, we're announcing uh, the product launch very soon, um, and we've got a number of committed Go to market partners as well. Paper Bank has really taken off globally now, and you're starting to see America with open banking and their real time payment rails and the, the things like FedNow um, picking up pace. You've also got Australia with Pay2 um, starting to gain momentum as it gets released by all of the banks. And, you know, there's just a general consensus from merchants that they're looking for a global network when it comes to alternative payments and, and not just the localized um, payment methods um, when it, you know, with, with uh, alternative A2A payments that they've been experiencing. So we're really excited and we think that it's, it's going to be a big opportunity next year in 2023 for Banked. Up next, this also comes from Reuters, is that crypto exchange FTX fails for bankruptcy as the CEO exit. Uh, the first thing I'll say about this one is if you don't know about this, you've either been living under a rock or you actually don't have Twitter. Uh, I don't think I've seen one subject dominate my feed so much as FTX. So, yeah, it's it's a situation that's very much continuing to unfold to the point that it's actually quite difficult to keep up with uh, what's um, kind of evolving day to day. I would never be able to do this story justice in just one snippet. Um, But what has been described as a castle built on sand appears to be increasingly more evident. And kind of at the crux of it all, uh, in a nutshell, if you can see, if you can do the FTX story in a nutshell, it appears that Alameda, a crypto hedge fund owned by Sam Bankman-Fried, who is the CEO uh, and founder of FTX, 
had been using FTT, which is FTX's own cryptocurrency, as collateral. Upon uh, this emerging, it prompted a sale of Binance's holdings, which were worth about $500 million in the exchange, and a slow burn crisis fully kicked into high gear. So there's much scepticism of what's been going on at FTX. I will leave you guys uh, kind of to do your own research and come up with your own conclusions on that. But it certainly feels uh, like it's it's been pretty unethical. And I think that was confirmed, you know, as of today with the new CEO of FTX, John Ray, stating that never in his career has he seen such a complete failure of corporate control. Um, and as much as it's all over the news and it's one to talk about and be fascinated by genuinely thinking of people that will have actually been affected by this. Uh, so, yeah, a really sad one. Um, a bit of a knock to the crypto industry, but hoping it's one that it can bounce back from. For more as this story unfolds, check out our sister show, Blockchain Insider, hosted by Mauricio Magaldi and Hugh Sheffield, uh, where they get to grips with what this means for the industry. Yeah, you got to check that one out for sure. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final section, looking at a more lighthearted story from the last week. So this story comes from Yahoo Finance. Uh, top tier of financial services celebrated at inaugural 11FS Awards. So it looks like we are the news. Um, 11FS has unveiled the first ever 11FS Awards with 14 awards given out across five categories. 11FS brought together experts across the industry to commend the most influential people and companies of 2022. Among the winners, JP Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon was named the FinTech Leader of the Year. The likes of Nick Ogden, Lawrence Wintermeyer, Anna Wallace and Sir Mark Wolpert were inducted into the 11FS Hall of Fame. And companies picking up awards on the night included Twig, GoHenry, Nubank and Stripe among others. So, uh, Nicole, you were there. What can you tell us about it? Oh, it was so good. It was just amazing. You know, the the team here had put on an incredible event. We we um, were really all about kind of flipping black tie on its head. So it was tacos for dinner, cupcakes for dessert. And we even had a virtual reality artist providing some halftime entertainment. So that was certainly interesting. So I was completely blown away by how someone could draw in that. It was it was just amazing. And most importantly, amazing to connect with people across the fintech ecosystem. It's, it's funny when you meet founders in real life because you admire them from afar and you admire the businesses you even use, some of the stuff, things that they built. And then you meet them in real life and they're normal people, you know, like exceptionally talented entrepreneurial individuals. But um, they're often extremely humble and lovely and exciting people to talk to so it was it was great to great to be there um i'd be keen to know what you guys uh kind of thoughts on game changers in fintech you know if you were to give an award out who would that be mo who would be a difficult question to answer <laughs> given uh, competitors etc but i think um as a general concept i would say open banking i think there is still so much value that hasn't been reaped out of open banking and so many use cases that, you know, the majority of the consumer market hasn't actually taken value from, that I think there is a lot more there to uh, to see. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We had an Open Finance Excellence Award uh, and yeah, it would be so amazing to see what we can do when it's fully embraced. What about you, Taya? I think first of all, you guys are doing 
great events. It's always super cool. I've been your like uh, after like school party. Well, what was it in September? After, uh, after dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After dark. So like I, I, I remember that I literally exhausted by networking with people. Like someone is coming, explaining his idea. The other one wants to sell something, and there's like one ex rugby player two meters tall, like whatever he's selling, I needed to buy because I feel like he, he could do something to me. But like, first of all, congrats. And I, I think I'm going to agree on more on this one. I think the recent developments on the open banking tech improvements, let's say, is opening a whole new field of like understanding the consumers and businesses offering new products because like this is this is something new and let's say 10 years ago things were like the things that were looking risky i think in the next five years is going to be less risky so that is opening up a whole new segment of understanding what what the consumers are businesses uh, having in their day-to-day financial life. So that is going to bring lots of new attention. Nice one. Yeah, I love that. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a good question, isn't it? I think ultimately I'd probably go back to um, what we touched on a little bit earlier in the show, you know, things that we're seeing sort of like adding those, those tools to those financial tool belts. I think obviously we've seen it with, um, with Klarna and, and and sort of bringing out that that buy now pay later that real sort of choice that flexibility that option that consumers didn't really have before we've seen um like uh, save now and buy later from like accrue savings and that you know people will naturally put those two things in competition i don't think they are i think actually they're two different tools that are probably useful in different contexts um and 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 you know everything that we're seeing around like um pay by bank and just giving consumers different choices different optionality um i just think that's uh that's a trend that i'd like to see continue empowering consumers and sort of giving them those tools to uh to build those better financial uh behaviors and also yeah just great to hear uh you guys feedback on the awards and 11fs events in general everyone that i've spoken to today like the vibes the positivity the the, the feedback has been awesome you know that's partly a reflection obviously on the the fintech sector and the industry and the people that are sort of within it. But I think it's also probably testament to how we always try and do things a little bit different, making that a little bit fresher. And it's nice to uh, see that that's sort of uh, resonating. So uh, the inaugural 11FS Awards, and I think we're already starting to think about the next one. So uh, I'm sure the growth team have a lot on their plate there. Um, I'm looking for an invite. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, I was saying this morning that every uh, one of your OKRs, if you run a fintech, is to make it to get to the Eleven FS Awards next year. So nice. challenge, challenge on, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, all right, excellent. Well, look that uh, that wraps up this week's news show, um, guys. Thank you all so much for joining us. Let's go around. If you could just tell us where people can find out maybe a little bit more about you and a little bit more about your company, uh, Nicole. Let's start with you. Sure thing. Would love to hear from you. You can find me on LinkedIn uh, as Nicole Perry or on email at nicole.pay at 11fs.com. Excellent. How about you, Tiger? Um, like, first of all, thank you so much for like uh, inviting us here. They can find me on LinkedIn. Easiest one is LinkedIn slash IN slash Tiger. So they can ask whatever they want. Uh, and good luck. That's all. Excellent. Thank you. And it's been our pleasure. Thank you for coming on. 
Um, and Mo, what about you? Awesome. Also, thanks for having me. Um, LinkedIn's always a great starting point. So uh, LinkedIn um, forward slash um, Garudi is how you can find me. Um, and uh, yeah, if you're working on some cool products, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Thanks, Mo. Um, and as for me, uh, you can find me at Ross Gallagher07 on Twitter. Uh, so thank you very much for listening. Uh, join the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thanks very much and goodbye.